Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest keyboardist, vocalist, harp man, songwriter, and the consummate blues man, Al Foreman. Uh, we'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music, the life of a career entertainer. And we'll get some other insights as well about working on albums and so much more. Uh, so join me for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been around, as they say. Al Foreman has been an icon of the Vancouver music scene since the 70s, best known perhaps for his time with Scrubble O'Kane, the Foreman Young Band, as well as many and other uh, subsequent projects that he's been involved in. He's basically done it all from touring and writing, recording, producing, and much more, which we will get into in our discussion. So thanks for joining me today, Al. How are you? Uh, you're welcome, Dan. Nice to be here with you. I'm fine. I'm fine. Good. Just doing good. Yeah. Right on. Well, I, uh, you're one of the guys I wanted to talk to. You know, we have a list of people we'd like to talk to, and your name came up a couple of times, and so I'm, I'm very happy to, to finally get a chance to talk to you. I've seen you a number of times over the years, which I'll, I'll share oh. with you as we, uh, as we get through our discussion here. Okay, that sounds yeah. good. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. yeah. So you obviously play piano and harp, and you, you've been active, well, it's been uh, half a century now uh 68 i joined yeah. the union so yeah that's uh that's pretty true and then of course i was playing uh weekends before that uh started off i guess playing weekends in the early 60s but 68 yeah. i joined the union so yeah it's been uh it's been quite a while now wow it's been a, been a lifetime eh? and then yeah I, I read here you played with tommy chong for a, a little bit in your teenage yeah, years that was, uh, that was my first the first real band, I guess, that I, I, I it was short lived because I was uh, uh, attending UBC at that time. But uh, yeah, he had a group. Uh, well, it was him and a guy named Tommy Melton. They had a group called Little Daddy and the Bachelors. Yeah. And uh, I got hooked up with them uh, probably about 1962. And that oh. was really my first sort of foray into the it was just weekends and it wasn't even weekends. It was really just gigs that they would come up with and. I, I was a part of the band for a while, but it was neat. It was a pretty good training school. And yeah, Tommy was the uh, sort of consummate professional and, uh, you know, as, as it were. And uh, we did a few gigs, well, more than a few. It was, it was a nice experience. Yeah, real early. Yeah, well, most people think of him as the comedian. Obviously, he became a superstar with uh, Cheech and Chong, but uh, yeah. he was a musician. And, he, and he, I guess he always was, and he maintained that through his life. But he always plays music, right? Yeah, he... Uh, I don't know when he started playing guitar. They came out from Calgary, I think, was his early roots. And, uh, uh, yeah, he played guitar. And um, this guy, Tommy Melton, that was the lead guy. They just called him Little Daddy. And so, uh, yeah, Tommy was the guitarist. I, uh, you know, I had uh, no inkling of what he would, what was to follow. I don't think anybody <laughs> did. But, uh, of course, he went on to great fame with Cheech and Chong, yeah. Well, that's the thing, because I'm, I'm not – quite where you are i'm a little, i'm catching up to you but i'm a little bit younger but, I mean, in the in the in my teenage years and stuff i mean cheech and chong when you're in high school that was so we we did those skits all the time we were joking yeah, yeah. Well, they were classic skits for sure yeah oh yeah so yeah. then uh so you were based in vancouver like you were you were born yeah. here or you're from here uh, born and raised yeah born and raised 1943 uh wow. i was born so i've been here for uh all my life there you go yeah. Yeah. And then, so you had lots of fun with your early bands. I mean, you get into music and it was an exciting time too, because you were right at the perfect age for the onset of rock and roll. And, you know, you know I, that's, that's so true, Dan. I was so lucky, uh, you know, to be born in, uh, 43 meant that I was a teenager and, you know, in, in the mid to late fifties when of course yeah. rock and roll was just coming on like a powerhouse and everybody had to, uh, adjust and adapt uh, especially parents but for young kids uh, like myself teenagers it was just the greatest uh, time to be uh, alive and able to absorb all this music plus I had begun taking piano lessons uh, in 54 so I uh, you know by the time 57 58 came around I was a, you know I sort of knew a little bit about uh, this music that I was enjoying and I could you know, could almost uh, 
play it with some with yeah. some uh, you know dexterity anyway. I don't know about uh, much more than that, but I quite enjoyed it for sure. Oh, that's that's super cool, and yeah. and being right there, like you're kind of a. I talked to Robbie Lane about that too. You're kind of a living historian because you've kind of lived it too. You've been you've watched it and been involved in it, so you become well, that, kind of a historian. Yeah, you know? that was the other thing about it that at the time you don't realize that, but reflecting on it, of course, years later, you're able to sort of talk about the onset of it. You know, with a fair amount of uh, knowledge of exactly what happened to me as a as a sort of a musician in the in the transition from learning about rock and roll and then learning where it came from and and learning about rhythm and blues and then blues music in general and then it just went from there. It's like a I always like to call it a voyage of discovery down through the years and it, it seems to never end, right? Yeah, no, it's great. And and then of course, like I said, you can share. And it's neat because uh, a lot of people are uh, are quite interested in that. I found that with this uh, doing the podcast and stuff, there's a real interest out there in, in hearing what people have to say about the, you know, especially when the, the whole music business too, like the Canadian music scene, I've heard that over and over again, was really in it, its infancy, right? Well, there wasn't much of a scene. So you were creating that, a scene. That's right? so true. And, and I wouldn't even say we would be creating a scene until really much later in the 60s and maybe even in the 70s when they got the Canadian content rules in place that helped right. a lot of acts. But in the early years, you know, it was sort of a few and far between. I know that uh, Les Vogt had a record out. Uh, he had a group called the Blamers. And I think yeah. you've interviewed Les Vogt, if I recall. I did talk to him. I've known Les for years and I did Have talk you? to yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, at that time, you know, you there was very few Canadian acts that were sort of, uh, um, I guess the Beaumarks come to mind. I remember that song called Clap Your Hands. I think they're from Montreal. And then, you know, in the early 60s, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, going on. And, well, of course, they, I think the big uh, mainstay would be the Guess Who, but they, they came on, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, I think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're right. The early scene was a developing time for uh, mostly the groups were from American. And, uh, of course, the British invasion came along. But Canadians yeah. were involved, but not in a huge way, maybe just a few acts, you know, Ian and Sylvia and, I guess there was groups out of Toronto, but um, yeah, it was an interesting time in the development of, uh, you know, rock and roll in general. And then the other aspects of it that uh, yeah. came through. Yeah. That's part of the history of it. And so yeah. you played in the late sixties in night train review. Yeah, that was my first, when I joined the union in 68, um, I actually got a, uh, an opportunity to join this group called uh, night train. And they were uh, they were like a, almost like a house band at uh, this club called Oil Can Harry's in Vancouver, yeah. and uh, it was managed by a guy named Danny Casita, and uh, who a lot of Vancouver people will maybe recall from that time. But absolutely, uh, when we joined the Night Train, uh, within about I'm going to say five to six weeks, uh, we went from having this little kind of a steady engagement at Oil Can Harry's to uh, an opportunity to travel. To San Francisco, we did an exchange. Pasita put all this together. He did an ex oh. he did an exchange with a band down in San Francisco. They came up to oil cans and they played there for six weeks. And we went down to San Francisco. We played a place called the Drag <laughs> the Dragon Agogo yeah. for six weeks. And uh, while we were there, Pasita, in his infinite wisdom, uh, got us a showcase gig down in Los Angeles. And we went down to Los Angeles for one night. And we did this showcase gig that allowed uh, people to see us because this gig was set up for promoters, agents, and um, sort of people in the industry to check out these acts. Yeah, and sure. we were sort of like this, you know, import act from Canada, if you will, that, that did this little showcase. And from there, believe it or not, Dan, we got another gig and that gig went from that to another gig, and we were on the road for two and a half years. I never got wow. back to Vancouver until the Christmas of 1970. Wow. Yeah. And and yeah. so you were in San Francisco right in the late 60s. That was right, the Haight-Ashbury time of... Uh... Yeah. It was a unique time to be there. We weren't really down there very much because we, we were working all the time in the yeah. club. But that, that's right. Haight-Ashbury was happening. And uh, so... Uh, you know, like I say, the big thing for us, though, was the fact that these other gigs followed. And next thing you know, we were in 
well, the next gig was Boulder, Colorado, and then it went on to Chicago and New York and Miami. We went all across the United States. It covered a lot of territory, and it was just a great, wonderful time. Uh, you know, the the band was a, a sort of a, uh, I guess you would call it a show band, a review of sorts. There was two yeah. lead singers and a seven-piece band, so it was pretty cool. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you about Night Train Review, because that's yeah. an iconic name around Vancouver. I mean, they carried on for probably a couple more decades, right? I mean, they were still they, going in the 80s, weren't they? Yeah, they did. When I uh, when I got back in uh, 1970, um, the group kind of drifted a bit, and I kind of left and went on with other things. And the band did go on for a number of years uh uh, of course, I was with other bands at this time, but they yeah. did survive in Vancouver. And then more recently, uh, although I think it's come to a conclusion now, but uh, one of the original keyboarders named Chuck Cliff started a, a bit of a reunion with uh, with the Night Train. And that was uh, uh, going strong, I think, through the uh, 90s and into the 2000s. And then okay. Chuck wrapped it up. Yeah. Yeah, cool. No, that's neat because I'd heard that name lots of times. And of course, it's one of those brands that yeah. everyone's heard of and, and revolving members, I suppose, to a, to a large extent. But it was. Yeah. Still, yeah. yeah, it was it was a great it was a great training ground, a good experience for well, for all of us, really. And it was, yeah. Yeah, it was a great time. So then I was curious about. So you ended up in Scrubble O'Kane, but you were from Vancouver, but that band came out of Calgary. No, did you? Well, did you, yeah, they 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 kind of cut their teeth in Calgary. What happened was I went out from Vancouver. There was three of us that traveled out there. Jimmy Harmada was a guitarist and a guy named Bob Kidd, uh, original bass player and myself traveled from uh, Vancouver out to Calgary. And yeah. we hooked up with uh, Henry and uh, Paul Dean at the time. And um, for uh, the first uh, few months, I guess we were struggling to find a drummer. And then we uh, finally uh, settled on Billy Macbeth. And uh, that was the roots of, well, first we're called Cannonball, but that was the roots of Scrubble O'Kane. Yeah. And uh, we headed out to uh, to uh, Quebec City. And um, that was where we really cut our teeth as a band. We, had a, we worked there for, I think, at least a couple of months, maybe longer, seven nights a week. It was unbelievable. But it was a fabulous club and a fabulous experience, and the band got quite a. It was a, quite a good band. We got pretty tight, and uh, of course we got well, uh, noticed by uh, Don Hunter, the management of the Guess Who, whilst well, through Jimmy Kale that came into the band. And yeah, anyway, yeah, that was the early part of. Well, no, it was a great band. It was, it was it was more than just a good band. It was a great band. I mean, you guys had a real a magical sort of uh, combination there. I think in in some measure, and then of course cutting your teeth in the clubs. I mean, it, it cuts both ways, right? You, you're playing all the time, but you're getting tight, tight, tight. Right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened, Dan. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but it was a great band. It really was part of one yeah. of the best bands that I've been with over the years, for sure. Yeah. And uh, a lot of talent and uh, just some great, great uh, gig experiences and uh, camaraderie. And it was a real, uh, it was a powerhouse band. We had some pretty yeah. good times, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. So, so the thing about Scrubble that that got me was that you were you were kind of all over the place because you ended up in Toronto and then you went to LA to record. Yeah. And so, how did yeah. that all happen? You got a record deal and then you ended up in Toronto. Well, the um, the big factor, I guess, would be uh, when we got out to uh, after we finished up in Quebec City, we were um, you know just a little bit in limbo, but um, we had. Uh, uh, gained some momentum because we had stopped in Winnipeg and uh, there uh, Jimmy Kale had come out to hear us. And he had at that time uh, wasn't with the Guess Who. And uh, of course, they were connected with this uh, management company in Winnipeg and uh, they they were quite interested in us. Okay. And uh, so that was the beginning of the Winnipeg sort of foundation connection. They were our management company. And that was where the deal got put together to record this album with RCA. And they just flew us down to uh, California to do the recording. And we went to New York to shoot the album cover. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a really uh, introduction to the big time, I guess, if you want to look well, at it that way for us. Exciting. I mean, Henry, yeah. Henry Henry told me about the album cover, said you spent a pile of money and they brought the ring in like yeah. an... <laughs> 
that was a great, that's right. I heard him talk about that. And it was exactly what happened. They brought all the staff in from the RCA offices in this in the New York building where they had all their staff and they built this actual boxing ring and of course they had all the band decked out well you've seen the cover I'm sure yeah absolutely and so that's the history behind that making of that cover yeah it's classic well I, mean, I thought it was kind of funny because I thought well the, the band wasn't really a bunch of tough guys or anything and then you're in a boxing ring and it's, 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 kind of, it's called round one I guess was the album we, we cover. just called it round one because I think at the time we were thought if we if we have a follow-up you know we could call it round two it was just the beginning of a sort of a what we thought might be a cycle so so that's why we called it round one. Yeah, perfect. But uh, it was uh, it was uh, you know a pretty significant album. Well, the only album they had out was quite significant at the time. We yeah. were a little bit uh, dejected about the the mix. Even when I listen to it now, the sound uh, sounds almost speeded up. And I learned years later there was a uh, there was a way that the RCA people had recorded it. Uh, it had to do with I can't even remember the title of it now, but uh, it was the way that it was recorded. This it was uh, something to do with Dyna Groove or something like that. I can't explain. Okay. It, so, I, so they do you think they sped the tape up a little bit? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But when, no. when, when you listen to it, even when I listen to it now, it, it sounds so. I think we were excited for sure because we were recording, and the songs no doubt no doubt about it. Some of them were a little bit fast and furious, but yeah. They uh, they have this tendency to almost sound like little chipmunks, you know. They <laughs> well, I um, guess, but you're you're kind of inside it too, right? Yeah, like the average I know, listener I know. just listens, right? You know, and goes, ah, I like it, you know. So, well, um, there's well, definitely but, people that liked it, yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny. I, I just on my Facebook the other day, somebody put on there, chill into some scrubble cane. You know, um, I I've uh, seen the I've seen the postings on there as well. I go on to Facebook sometimes or whatever, you know. You just be yeah. curious about what's going on. Sure enough. Uh, people have downloaded parts of the album, and it, it's quite a, uh, I wouldn't say it's sought after, but it, it's up there amongst the iconic sort of albums that, you know, one-hit wonder bands kind of did. Well, I, I think so. And so when you went to L.A., were you assigned a producer, or did you take one down with you? No, we were assigned a staff producer, a guy named Dave Kirschenbaum, okay. and we didn't know much about him or his track record, and, you know, really weren't that uh, uh, that knowledgeable about uh, producers and who to get. We just, it was a staff producer with RCA and, okay. and we went down there pretty prepared anyway. So yeah. he didn't have to do a whole lot. We just sort of tore into the stuff that we did and, uh, you know, not to sort of, uh, discredit him and all. He was a fine producer, but, uh, we were already stoked and ready to go with the material. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. And Paul, Paul Dean was in the band too, and he's pretty right. intense. I mean, he's pretty involved in pretty much every aspect of everything, right? Was he, yeah. did, did they get along okay? Did, was there any? Oh yeah. No, yeah. That was the thing about the band. We were all uh, very much in tune with each other. Uh, Paul and, uh, and Jimmy Harmata, the, the twin guitarists were just, they were having a field day with each other because they came from different backgrounds and styles. And, uh, but they were, uh, very compatible in, in the whole unit. Good. And uh, of course, uh, the fact that Henry could sing his ass off and play violin. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, when I'm playing uh, B3 and we had a great little rhythm section. And of course, Kale was, a, uh, you know, a decent bass player. And so yeah. it was a pretty strong little unit when we started to Absolutely. record on it. Yeah. And then the producer got along with everybody. He didn't, he didn't, uh, like, was he the executive producer kind of telling everybody what to do or just kind of you know, more or less, he kind of sat back. Paul was more interested in the production side and the, you know, the mix and that kind of thing. I was pretty naive about all that stuff back yeah. then. But Paul was quite interested in it even from the early days. But uh, yeah. as far as uh, Kirschenbaum, the producer, he he kind of uh, kind of had to let us have free reign into how our arrangements went. And uh, in fact, he was taken with quite some of them. Like there's an arrangement of Trouble, which is quite significant that was our own yeah. sort of idea of this uh elvis you probably maybe heard the song yeah, no i have i, I listened yeah. to the whole album yeah yeah so when elvis's version of trouble is you know it's pretty much completely yeah. different we so you know to answer your question christian bomb was there but i think really uh the band had a lot of uh input as to you know how we'd already structured our arrangements and oh good and okay well that's good to hear because sometimes yeah. when you get a staff producer and the guy's you know a little bit harsh and you know, the band isn't really feeling the vibe and stuff. I've heard that a few times. And, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised. No, we didn't experience any of that, which is yeah, great. Good. Well, cool. Well, and, and the album, of course, sounds great. And then so you did Edmonton Rain. That's cool. That's that's you playing piano in the beginning <laughs> of that. 
Yeah. 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 That was my, uh, I, I began writing, uh, kind of when I was at the tail end of uh, night train and, uh, you know, I had, uh, some ideas about some songs. And so by the time I got to uh, Scrubble, uh, I'd already written some things. And, uh, so that was, that was kind of a nice, uh, advantage for me. And, uh, you know, the guys like the material and, uh, so uh yeah that was that was yeah. part of my introduction well, no it was good it sounds great too and and i was wondering about do i love you like there's uh there's a double lead vocal and how much singing did you do in that band was that is one of those voices yours or did henry do uh, no no i i i i uh, sang with henry henry was the lead yeah. singer no doubt about it but we used to uh we would trade off but primarily he was the lead singer and yeah. sometimes we'd sing together or, you know there'd be certain harmony parts that we that we'd work out and uh, do I love you was that was a gas just doing that because he was uh, uh, just a wonder to work with, you know, because he uh, yeah. had such a gifted voice. And, uh, you know, we both loved the material. It didn't really matter who wrote it, whether it was uh, myself or, or one of the other guys or even if it was a cover tune, you know, we would just yeah. tackle it as a unit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's one of those voices yours on, do I love you? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Singing the line. He's singing line. Yeah. That, that's yeah. what I thought when I listened to it, but then I thought, oh, I better ask you. Mm-hmm. And then no, that's good him on and I. Yeah, him and I singing as a yeah, it's unit. Yeah, it was pretty tight. <laughs> and then feeling good on Sunday, it's same deal. Like it's double vocals too, right? Uh yeah, that was uh, that was one. I think we shared the bridge. Uh, he would sing one line, I would sing the other. But uh, primarily, it was him and I doing uh, both parts. And uh, it would depend on the song. You know, if the song felt yeah. like right to have a either a, an alternate vocal or a, or. or harmonized vocal we would sort of tackle it that way yeah good so, so you yeah. and you and him were the two main singers. yeah like yeah, yeah okay no that's very cool and then on traveling that's you playing the piano which is super yes. nice right yeah that was one i wrote for my parents <laughs> my parents are a little bit alarmed that i was going to become a professional musician so yeah. went back to my uh decision to become a musician in the uh, 60s and uh my parents were they had this vision of me being i don't know Dr. Roller or something, because I had spent some time out at UBC yeah. and um, actually four years out there, but I, I flunked the last two because I was <laughs> so involved with music, playing, playing it much. on the weekend. Yeah. And so uh, I wrote this song, you know, just kind of to let them know that I probably was going to be all right. And uh, so that's the uh, history of the traveling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't get to sing that though. Was that Henry singing or is that you mm-hmm. singing? No, no, Henry sang it. Yeah, yeah he, liked, he liked that song. I think the, I, all of us could sort of possibly relate to the lyric because it was, yeah. even though I had written it from a personal standpoint, trying to appease my folks or let them know that I was going to be okay. Yeah, I think all of us were in the band and, you know, kind of just single and just heading out and doing whatever we do, right? So. Yeah, and then you did uh, Crazy About a Blues Guitar, which oh. is almost uh, <laughs> like that's a kind of a, an epic, right? It's it's long and you know, it's got to yeah, that is so cool. I, I that goes back to uh, early um, love of uh, electric blues guitar. When I was uh, in uh, the bands, uh, both Night Train and even earlier with Tommy and those guys, um, I kind of already knew about rhythm and blues, and I definitely, by the time the '60s came along, was completely immersed. In uh, in what would later become soul music, but I just knew it as rhythm and blues, and yeah. I loved the sound of uh, electric guitar. I think the first one I probably got to know of any significance was BB King. But as the years went on, in the early '60s especially, I got hip to uh, I think first uh, Freddie King, and then yeah. uh, Albert King. But the bottom line was I just loved uh, the electric guitar and uh, the sound of it and the way they could express themselves on it. And uh, that was the reason for writing the song. I just decided to write that song and it became, it was a huge uh, sort of uh, success for the band when when we would play that song, people would go nuts because uh, it had this this middle part, we'd break into a slow blues and and it was was, was quite quite the iconic tune, yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing it too, so. Well, listen, let me take a break, and we'll be right back. We're talking to Al Foreman. Hey, do you want to hear about new episodes before they go live? Then join the Liner Notes VIP community. You'll be able to listen to the weekly podcast before the general public, plus the episodes have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. You'll also hear exclusive bonus episodes and be the first to know about upcoming guests. 
To check out the details and become a member, go to linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Al Foreman about uh, Scrubble O'Kane and uh, what happened with that band. And then we're going to get into some of the stuff he did after that as well. But uh, welcome back, Al. I just wanted to ask you about uh, Scrubble O'Kane because it's there's so many bands, you know, that that made it in the past. We used to say yeah. you're going to make it, right? And then there's a whole bunch of yeah. bands that kind of almost made it, you know. And, and yeah. you know, I think of bands like, like Scrubble O'Kane. Like, you, you know, all the pieces are there. You got the album. Yeah. You got the record deal. You're touring. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do. Yeah. to make it work and then and it doesn't work yeah. out so what, what happened yeah well i think i i was uh somewhat discouraged uh i think maybe most of, not most of the band but we felt that we were sort of just more spinning our wheels and we didn't really feel that we were getting uh, the attention that we deserved. we always thought we would be more suited for uh like we did open for a couple of times for the guess who yeah. and we always felt that um that the management kind of uh, sidelined us or for whatever reason, we were doing a lot of high schools out in Toronto and uh, we played clubs as well, but uh, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a time that we uh, felt that we were getting as much attention as we should have. Anyway, it was, it was a little bit discouraging and I, I, I got a little bit discouraged about the scene and uh, I decided to leave. It probably may not have been the best decision at the time, no. But I uh, I kind of uh, made up my mind about it, and I decided that uh, that was it. I was going to be uh, moving on, and I left in 75. Okay. And so, yeah. And then you came back to Vancouver. Uh, I did come back to Vancouver, but not for very long. I, uh, I had gotten married uh, uh, to my second wife, and uh, we came back to Vancouver, and uh, I hooked up with a guy named Mike Young, who was yeah. uh, working uh, as a uh, as a part of a duo down at uh, Gary Taylor's club down in uh, oh, I was in the uh, not the Cecil Hotel, I forget the name of the hotel. Anyway, uh, that was when I met Mike Young, and that was yeah. the very early beginnings of the association with the uh, Foreman Young. Yeah. yeah. No, very cool. Well, yeah. So, just just on the the Scrubble O'Kane thing for a yeah, second, it, yeah. it, it seems kind of like there were six of you in the band, right? So it's a little yeah. bit like herding cats, as they say. And then, and of yeah. course, there's always money issues, and and you know, the, what are we going to do from here on? And and we've got some sort of level of success, but what the heck yeah. do you do after that? So, well, I, w- I always wonder why you didn't do a follow up album. Did you lose the the record deal? Like, because you were with CBS Records, right? And you were in the no. State. It was RCA records. Oh, sorry. Okay, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. It was RCA, and uh, we may have been able to do a follow-up album had I stayed with the band. Okay. Possibly, I'm not saying that I was sort of the main link that everything fell apart when I left. But the, for whatever reason, once I had left, uh, they had tried to carry on. Things didn't materialize for whatever reason. I think, okay. like I say, there was a bit of a discouragement factor that was prevalent even prior to my leaving but uh you know i'm maybe reading too much into it there but uh yeah that's that's kind of what happened i moved on and then i guess the band struggled a bit and i'm not sure after all that uh, okay well well thanks for sharing that because uh you know you you think well when you put all the pieces together and you have some level of success like it's only up from there usually right yeah you would like to think so yeah (laughs) but you know i'm sure we're not the first band to have a limited success yeah no it's true yeah, it is kind of a shame because the band, you know, it was a powerhouse unit. And yeah. uh, so, yeah. Well, it's true because they're, like I've, I'm often in doing all these interviews and all these discussions and that. What what does it take to really punch through the top, you know? And, and Paul Dean obviously figured it out with Loverboy because they got to yeah. the, the, the top. Yeah. But it's there were so many bands that were capable of doing that and they were kind of right yeah. there, just right grabbing for the ring. I know. Just, you know, but. Um, yeah, I think the main thing is you have to stay together. Yeah. Uh, kind of through thick and thin, and uh, I I wasn't actually uh, prepared to do that to a full commitment. That's kind of why I yeah. left. I think. Yeah, fair enough. And so, you know, that's a factor for sure because we did have most of their pieces were together. I wasn't really that totally enthused about our management, but uh, that's another story. Yeah. And um, you know, uh, you know, getting back to Scrubble for just a sec. That's that was really uh, there was a lot of pieces that were there, and it. You know, it, it was a shame that it didn't do more. Yeah. Yeah. And then you ended up in Vancouver. And it's funny mm-hmm. because I, I met you probably 1978. 
you you wouldn't Whoa. remember you wouldn't remember but you had the song uh on the radio wonder what you're doing and right. my the guy that i was playing with was a bass player and he was taking lessons from lawrence and you guys oh, were playing wow. at patties in gastown and i was oh, underage i was about God. 18 <laughs> and uh and my buddy said we're gonna go see lawrence and the foreman young band and i knew you oh, had the cool. song on the radio and i loved it and so yeah. we came down to patties it was downstairs and you were you guys were down there and it sounded great wow loved it ah, that's so. crazy <laughs> yeah, and you, you guys were you had a good hype going. I mean, you had the song you you had recorded that song. Uh, yeah, I wonder what you're doing tonight. You were on it was on the radio, so you guys were well, doing I, the thing, right? I had a I had a pretty good second chance there when when the Foreman Young Band started to develop. Um, I, I I was pretty enthused, and I got uh, it went from a duo, just me and Mike Young, yeah. to a five piece band, and then we got hooked up with. Uh, uh, this guy Ray Pettinger with Casino Records, and he had been um, he knew of another trio that he was working with called Gary Betty, Gary Betty and Blue, which is yeah. Gary Colliger and Betty Chaba and Blue Williams. Anyway, uh, we all just we decided to kind of join forces, and that was the Foreman Young Band. So cool. we had uh, uh, that was the and then the song I wonder what you're doing tonight uh, was actually started started being written by Billy Macbeth, the drummer in Scrubbelow. Yeah. He had a uh, he just had the sort of the hook, but he didn't have any of the story. And so uh, we'd already parted company, of course, because I was with the Foreman Young Band. And I I wrote the song thinking about him. So that oh. lyric about uh, how's it going, my friend, you know, I've been thinking yeah. about it. That's just me talking about Billy. Oh, cool. And so, you know, in this day and age, you just pick up a cell phone and call him and say, how's it going? But yeah. <laughs> back yeah. then, I wasn't even sure where he was. And uh, so that was, and then I played him the song and uh, he thought, this is great. So uh, then I, you know, showed it to the guys and it ended up being uh, the one that they chose as a single. And of course, the, the other aspects of the band were, you know, the other people had written some stuff too. And uh, so that was... Uh, the Foreman Young Band's uh, inroads that that was pretty strong as well. We had good management for a while. Uh, unfortunately, there was a control uh, control issue by the record label, who also wanted to manage us and control everything else. So that uh, that whole thing really was uh, not a good uh, not a good scene at all. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. So you were you yeah. were on uh, CKLG. You got charted. You were peak position 13, is what I'm reading here. Okay, so, I'm, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. It was yeah, pretty. No. It was kind of a national hit right across yeah. Canada. So that yeah. was uh, that was a pretty good feather in our cap. And we managed to tour, you know, on the strength of that. And uh, you know, we did a cross Canada tour, and you know, as everything was going actually along quite well, we had uh, this American yeah. management company was interested in it. And so, did you uh, have a record deal? Like, was that just a single that you put out? You didn't put out an album, had, though, right? We had a single, and we had a lot of stuff. Uh, sort of in the can ready to go for an album and uh, that never came to fruition uh, because the uh, management and the record label uh, got into a pretty significant uh, um, well more than just a disagreement things uh, were I don't want to get into all the gory detail but yeah. uh, suffice it to say that uh, things did not work out band was kind of caught in the middle and uh, by this time, we had been taken down to uh, uh, California by the management company, and they yeah. put us up in a uh, in a uh, motel, and we re rehearsed uh, for six days straight, preparing for this because uh, we were going to be opening for the Beach Boys. Yeah. And uh, we uh, ended up doing that concert. That was a highlight of my life. Like nice. one of them, anyway. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So that was cool. And then, of course, it wasn't long after that that uh, this management and um, recording label dispute started to escalate and uh, we were caught in the middle. We had to get a lawyer and I was kind of fortunate to get my publishing back on that one song and, and everything else that was on the label uh, or on the you know prospect of another album or the first album actually uh, never came to fruition. So. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's another example of just about right. Like you, you got you got well, the pieces in place. You got a song on the radio. I mean, that's what everybody wants, right? You yeah, there there definitely was pieces in place, and the strength was there. And uh, this uh, sort of misguided dispute that we we're caught in the middle of 
it really wasn't pretty. Uh, there was uh, lawyers involved, and uh, and uh, we were pretty much uh, cut off by both uh, the label and the management company. We were kind of left out in the, in the in limbo, really. Yeah. And uh, we just came back from California, and uh, that I was really discouraged after this one. And I just took a complete break from the from the uh, sort of the scene of going out and getting with bands and uh, yeah. struggling to sort of do whatever. I just sort of uh, this is 1978 now, and I just decided yeah. I was going to take a little breather from all that. Yeah, it's a long, lonely road, boy. It can be uh, it can be tough. <laughs> so let me just put a plug in here for Ray McGinnis. Yeah. He's doing this uh, countdown Vancouver. Oh. And it's uh, VancouverSignatureSounds.com. And he's got you on there at number 889. With, yeah. uh, uh, how's it been going, my friend? You know, yeah. so it's yeah. uh, wonder what you're doing. And so he really liked it. And he's got some information on there. So if people want to check it out, it's VancouverSignatureSounds.com. And uh, he sent me a copy of that. And so we're going to try to get you some airplay on, uh, on Dusty Discs Radio and uh, let people hear that song again. I think it needs to be... Uh, brought back out and let people hear it it's a great song that sounds fine to me yeah well, that's good <laughs> yeah i've seen that signature sounds uh and uh, yeah i don't know who put all that together but yeah i've seen the song on there and uh, that's cool well i tried to get because you can play the song on his website but you can't download it so i just emailed him and he sent it to me oh cool and then i got it to the ladies at the radio station so uh oh, nice here we go yeah and then you teamed up with uh, Jim Burns because I, I know you had Foreman Young and then Foreman yeah. Burns. I think I saw you guys downtown. I can't remember where, though. I'm scratching my head because we were talking 40 years ago here now, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, that, that was the next phase, actually, because when I got to uh, back home in 78 from uh, down in California, um, we, uh, I, like I say, I took a little bit of a hiatus from all the craziness, and I... Uh, was living in a little in a little apartment in Kits, and I had uh, decided I was going to put together this uh, blues show, and uh, I decided that I was going to do it as a concert, and I wrote the script. I got my buddy Bill Ryder to do a narrative. I brought the people together that I wanted to have, and I that was when I first met uh, uh, Tom and Jack Lavin. Yeah. At the, just prior to the Potter Blues, these are just sort of people that I got to meet when I would uh, come back after the uh, Foreman Young fiasco. Yeah. And uh, I uh, got the, uh, the venue. Uh, we did it out at the, uh, uh, the place uh, on Venables in the East End, the Vancouver East Cultural Center. Oh, okay, yeah. And we, it, was, it was called Summertime Blues and Appreciation. And it was quite a success. It got really good reviews. And of course, that's where I met Jim Burns. I'd, I'd seen him perform at Rohan's yeah. and uh, I brought him on board as a guest on the show. There was a number of people that were in the show, of course, but uh, Jimmy was like a special guest because he just arrived in town from St. Louis. And of course, he uh, he uh, played slide guitar and sang. And and so that was the, the impetus to uh, start working with him after, after that uh, initial... Uh, show that i did which was quite a success jimmy and i decided to you know kind of work together and put a band together and that was the beginning of the foreman burns blues band yeah cool. and yeah. then uh you guys did a bunch of gigs around town and did you tour at all or record not really we didn't okay. do any touring or recording we uh we did some gigs around town we traveled a bit did a lot of work over on the island actually at harpo's and over in nanaimo yeah. and uh but uh, no, we, we we did get interest actually from uh, from a management company. Or they're actually there an agency. Uh, the guy that was connected with Bruce Allen, Sam Feldman. Yeah. And uh, but we, I, I kind of, uh, I turned him down at the time. I was, I was really gung ho about sort of looking after the group myself, and yeah. and so uh, I. Uh, we went along as, as uh, you know, sort of unmanaged and just decided what we wanted to do ourselves. And then uh, uh, I, at some point, I had decided I wanted to go back to school uh, to get some more education about uh, music and arranging. And, and I was a little bit, um, although I like blues, I grew up, I loved it, I still love it. But uh, as a performance entity, it was somewhat limiting. Yeah. And I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to see what else was out there and expand a bit. So uh, 
that was the impetus for the next uh, sort of phase of my life, which was when I went back to school. Nice. And uh, it was when I went to Cap College and learned how to arrange and and uh, and delved into the various vast, various aspects of the commercial music program. Uh, when I had that song all called "Everybody Wants More Money," that was the result of me being able to. Or I arranged the horns for that song. Oh, cool. Plus, I had written the song, but I did the horn arrangement as well. And it was pretty. I, I quite enjoyed this whole year that I was at school. Yeah. And so that was the next phase of my. That that was when I started just working, uh, just under the Al Foreman band with various configurations yeah. of guys to come and go. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's cool. No, that, that speaks well of you to do that. You know, you already had some uh, a certain level of success. You'd been playing, you were yeah. gigging. Then you went back to school and, and well, Cap College, for those people who don't know, if they're listening across Canada, uh, Cap College was the place to get an education in music in Vancouver for decades. Still, it's Cap University now. And now but, it's Cap uh, University, yeah, yeah. right. But uh, that was the place to go. So you went there and, and got some training, and then everybody wants more money. Uh, you put that out on Munchkin Records. Now, that was yeah. your own, your own I, record label? You started your own? I, I formed my own record label, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether I – if if it had a huge success, I probably would have got sued by the guys who own that name, Munchkin. I'm sure it goes back to the to the days of uh, of the uh, Wizard of Wizard Oz. Of Oz yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, the song never – it was just sort of a regional hit, but that was fine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I quite enjoyed it. it went, I think I got on the charts on LG for a bit there. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen you play it, too. I've, I It must have been at the Fairview or I think I was, oh, yeah, up, in, yeah. I think I was up in Powell River one time, too. And we were up there at the same time. I think you were playing oh. somewhere in Powell River and I was, too. And when I came over and saw you and I heard you play that, too. So, yeah, you used to play it in your <laughs> cool. shows all the time. Right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I still do. Yeah, <laughs> no, very cool. Yeah. So that's neat. Well, the, the interesting thing, like from my perspective is, and, and I asked, I've asked a few other people like Al Harlow and those guys about this, but all, a lot of the bands, they seem so short lived, you know, like everybody was just bouncing around and you're in this band and you're in that band and this band lasts six months or a year. And what do you think the reason was for that? Uh, I'm not really sure. I, I, I can speak for myself. I think I would get sort of anxious to sort of, uh, have either something happen or I would just feel like it was time for me to do something else. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't that totally committed to uh, working uh, with whatever unit I was with. Well, the Foreman Young thing, that fell apart. There's no way anybody would have stayed in that. And then working with Jimmy, like I say, I was enjoyable, but it was somewhat limiting in yeah. the way of uh, the type of music that we played. And I also, for whatever reason, I just wanted to get some more education. So and then when I worked uh, after that, when I was just under my own name, you know, it was my first sort of uh, uh, where you're completely responsible for sort of hiring and firing guys. And then, you know, you get into that aspect of keeping a band together. And uh, that was always a difficult thing for me. I never really liked to. Uh, uh, I didn't mind being a band leader, but that aspect of it always uh, did not really sit very well with me. So. I wasn't a very cutthroat kind of man. You got to be, uh, talk about successful bands. If you're a single guy or a single artist, you have to be able to know what you want and, you know, sort of hire and fire the guys who are, who are, are going to make you a more of a success because your name is out there. And so yeah. if you don't have proper personnel that are, you know, and so that, I think that's a part of it as well, Danny, why it doesn't really sort of yeah, work no, out. Yeah, you make some fair points there. Yeah, you make some fair yeah. points there because being the band leaders is a, is a challenge in itself, and then hiring and firing, and then yeah. no one's coming there to see you. If if it's the Al Foreman band, then you're the guy. And yeah, that's, that's yeah, it, you know. So. And I, of course, I've heard about various guys who over the years that are you know successful acts, but they're they're not that pleasant to work for. You know, like <laughs> James James Brown comes to mind, or yeah. Ray Charles. Uh, you know, people that that uh, for whatever reason they wanted a certain way, and if you like it or you're not capable or you don't uh you know sort of toe the line you're out you know well i've 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 had some success in that of course around vancouver because i don't like to tour but you know it's it's been that way you have to be firm but nice and and i have a formula yeah. for success and i will not stray from that formula for success because it's too okay. tenuous like if you if i don't do what i need to do 
So, you know, I'm willing to argue about that if we need to yeah. argue about it, you know, so yeah. I can see that mentality. You still want to be nice and personable and you want to be yeah. fair to the people around you. But by the same token, there's a certain intensity, like a Bruce Allen kind of intensity that yeah. you know, he, he can be nice to you and then, you know, yeah. smack you upside the head two minutes later because something's not quite yeah. right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's their formula for success. So that I was going to ask you about the Tom Lavin thing. Did you did you ever record a Blue Wave? Did you have an association with him? You must have no. I, I did a couple of uh, little uh, segments of Blue Wave just as a sort of a um, not even a recording. I was just a session musician or a session okay. singer. There was a time in the early '80s when I was working uh, just on my own, even whether I, when I had a band. I got uh, a fair number of calls for doing. Uh, um, sessions work not as a music uh, not as a player uh but as a singer so oh. i did uh some stuff uh <laughs> one one specifically comes to mind because they aired it for about 20 years and i uh i didn't get a whole lot of it except i took my uh, 100 bucks which i got for recording it but uh there was a commercial that came out there and uh it did reasonably well and it was on the air for about 15 years and oh. uh so yeah, you may have heard a song called "Everybody Wants More Money," and I yeah. also did a little jingle that went "Our Way to the USA." Yeah, West of course. Coast. Yeah. That's West Coast Duty <laughs> anyway, Free. Yeah, yeah, West Coast Duty Free. That's that's you on there. That's me singing that crazy. Thing. But you didn't yeah, get any so. residuals. You got to get residuals. I didn't get any residuals. <laughs> I, I, oh, I'll give you a little history. I, you can probably you don't, you'll probably want to edit this out, but oh, I'll tell, tell you me. Yeah. quite a riot. When the when I went down there to do it. You know, of course, I was flattered to even get the call. You go in there, and, and they, it's going to be a demo. And I knew that, and you get a demo rate. It's usually 100 bucks. I was quite happy with that. And I got my demo fee, and uh, I was in and out of there in a half hour. So I thought, okay, I'll probably get a call back, and that'll be good. Well, I didn't get a call back because they used the demo. Oh. The client the client was satisfied with the demo. Yeah. And Griffiths Gibson, of course, who, were, who had produced the demo, they were if the client's satisfied, they're satisfied. This thing comes out on the airwaves, not just on the radio. It was on TV for a while sometimes. Oh, I've and heard it that would be... thousand, a thousand times. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so I was just, people would say to me, God, you, what are you doing? you got to go take them to court or whatever. I said, no, nah, I can't be bothered with all that. But it was funny. You know, that was exactly what happened. It was a demo that the client was satisfied with. Wow. And uh, that was what was out there. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you told me that because I I never knew who did that, but it's it sounds oh, okay. great, and they used it. Yeah. That their, that's their hook. That's their whole advertising yeah. hook. I, I know. Too yeah. funny. Um, and then so in 1986, you did this deep in the heart of Vancouver. I couldn't find a copy of that anywhere. I I tried. Uh, I've got about 200 in my garage, so I'll yeah. send them over to you. No, <laughs> but there wasn't that one was online, my, like on that, on YouTube. No, yeah, you know what? It's funny. I just saw. I went online to see if there's anything out there. And uh, someone had put one up for sale on uh, Craigslist, and they wanted fifty bucks. Oh, it was a it was a unopened vinyl, wow. and uh, of course I got an unopened vinyl in my garage. I, I'll give you a little history of that one. I wrote it for Expo, as you may know. Yeah, and uh, I was completely driven. I thought for sure this would be a surefire hit, and I had five thousand copies of this. It was a four-song extended play, but it was a uh, it was a large LP. So yeah. in other words, it was a it was an album LP size, but only four songs on. So it's an LP. It, it plays at uh, forty-five, but it's a LP size. Anyway, okay. yeah. that was the uh, that was the song and the album cover. I did the album cover myself, wrote the song, and then tried to tried to get the expo people interested in it. I put together a presentation. And uh, they they didn't bite. They couldn't see. I had this vision of having Brian Adams do the lead vocal on it, and just yeah. having a whole uh, you know gamut of Vancouver-based entertainers or even Canadian entertainers for that matter. Yeah, that would be sort of the best of the best. Uh, you know, Dean was around with Loverboy at that time, and uh, they they didn't bite. And so I just put the song out anyway, just under. I recorded it and. And uh, got some players together and put this EP together. And so that was when that came out. But I couldn't get any airplay. Okay. Uh, I, I learned quite quickly that um, 
the uh, top 40 format was still strong as ever. And they really weren't that interested in the fact that uh, a local kid had uh, sort of written a song about Expo. They they just, I got some airplay on uh, CKW Expo, believe it or not, which is kind of oh. strange because it wasn't really a country song. But at any rate, that's yeah. my story. of. Okay, no, I wanted to ask you about that because, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a four-song four EP. And, of course, Correct. people that don't know, Expo 86 in Vancouver was a big deal, right? And everybody was, there was a real buzz around this town for many years leading up to it oh, yeah. and then during it. And, and good on you for doing that. But I guess, like, I'm, I'm reading that book, Hitman and stuff, right? And there's a whole sort of dirty under business that goes on <laughs> with the, in the music business, as, of course, not surprising. Yeah, I'm not but, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> unless you have pockets full of money and you're splashing cash around or you've got the one of the gatekeepers, management, record companies, sort of pushing everything out there, it's real hard to even make a dent in anything, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, let me take one more break and then we'll come back and do our last segment. Sounds good. All right. We're talking to Al Foreman. We'll be right back. Check out songs from today's artists and other Canadian music makers of the 60s through the 80s on Dusty Discs Radio. Each Tuesday and Thursday, it's nothing but Canadian oldies. You'll hear songs you know, others you've forgotten, and maybe a tune or two you've never heard. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and make it a favorite. Let's get back to our special guest. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're talking to Al Foreman about the Vancouver music scene and, oh, across Canada and down in L.A. and back in Toronto and all the stuff that he's done. And uh, we were just talking about Expo. Of course, you're a Vancouver boy, so you you were right in the thick of that. And did you do any gigs around Expo? Did you play at the, the Unicorn or anything? Yeah, we, actually, we did. Uh, I had the band down there and played uh, some of the clubs. Well, there was one club that we played a lot. It wasn't, it wasn't the main venue, though. There was one venue that would have been nice to uh, to get on there, but we were at a, a smaller venue, which is fine. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I did a lot of work around that uh, around the time of Expo and then continued on after that, although I was at that time also uh, in the throes of doing some exploring over in Europe, just working solo over there. Yeah. I had this opportunity. Actually, Doc Fingers got me a gig over in Germany. Oh, nice. And uh, that I did uh, did some solo work over in Germany and uh, Switzerland and yeah did some traveling and then the next phase that was pretty cool I got a house gig at a place called Jake O'Grady's yeah, I remember yeah from, eight, from eighty eight to ninety four and that was wonderful yeah, yeah. well and you I were still a, playing you played the Yale and the Fairview and all the the regular yeah shows, right? but primarily we were at Jake's yeah. it was like a house band there and uh, we. We never moved uh, unless we had some offer that was worthwhile and we'd bring in someone else to sub for us. But primarily we were at Jake's for six cool. years, 88 to 94. Yeah. yeah. And I quite enjoyed that. And, and so did the guys that I was working with because it was steady income and we would be very hospitable to people that would come around because the band was pretty good. And, yeah. uh, and the club was, uh, was a happening little place at Boundary and Hastings. Maybe you're listed by no, but the ones in Vancouver at any rate, uh, that was a pretty good little, uh, time for me and for the rest of the guys as well, because we got established in uh, in uh, real estate because we were able to have steady work. Yeah, yeah. There you, you know, go. six years yeah. at a, a house gig was kind of rare anyway. Yeah. So uh, I took it and uh, kind of never looked back until the club uh, moved on in '94, got sold to someone else. Yeah, that's right. I've I've played that venue a number of times over the years. Like in the '80s, I played. I, it was yeah. I think it was Jake's in the '80s too, but I can't remember. But uh, yeah, I know exactly where it is. I've, yeah. Well. Used to be called. It was called Diamond Lills at one time. Diamond yeah. Lills. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. That's what it was mm. called. We played at Diamond Lills in the <laughs> mid eighties. Oh my god, yeah, we did. Yeah. And then it was something. What it said. What was it after that? It was, I, it was something after that. I can't recall. Yeah, I can't yeah, you're right. And then it went on. It was Jake's, and now it's now. I just learned the other day. It's completely gutted. I don't know what's going oh. on there now. It's going to be apartments, I guess. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's yeah, the, the building way music goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've had a sort of a circuitous route, if I may say, you know, with all the original music and then doing the the blues, getting into the blues stuff, and then you you went back to school, and then and then you went back and did the music therapy program. Oh was, yeah, that that was an interesting. interesting phase too. When Jake ended, yeah. Uh, of course, I you know I was starting to uh, getting into my fifties now, and I you know kind of was somewhat not really discouraged, but I was just kind of spinning my wheels. Uh, earning money and playing music, not really uh, knowing that my sort of glory years were behind me. But I 
I did uh, enjoy playing, but uh, my mom had taken sick and uh, was in a place, and uh, I went there to uh, to uh, take her there. And, and uh, when I was there, there was a piano there, and I played for her, and I was quite amazed at what a draw, what a magnet that was, and all these people had sort of gathered around. Yeah. And so that was my first sort of uh, realization that was a whole sort of, uh, I can't say I had an epiphany, but I realized that this was a whole population that I had ignored for whatever reason, because I was playing clubs and bars, and you just get into that framework, and you don't want really to think about uh, you know, playing in a care facility, because that's sort of like, then you've gone out to pasture, right? You know. Yeah. Well, that was uh, quickly changed when I started playing, and uh, I realized what a gift I had because I was older. I knew the material. I had gone through this life experience, and I was uh, already sort of uh, aware of performing, so I didn't have any performance anxieties. And so I started doing some entertainment at these facilities, and then I thought I really – I met a music therapist and I was curious and she said, you know, if you want to, you should check it out. And they offered this course at Cap College. So 1997, back I went to Cap College for two years wow. and took a music therapy program, got a degree in 2000. And from there until 2015, I was a music therapist and I loved every minute of it. It was just great. Yeah, that's so neat. And actually, there's so much in what you just said. But the, the, the first thing is about, you know, being willing to go back and get some training and whatnot. But yeah. I think the the overriding thing is is sharing your gift with people and, and lifting them up with your gift. And yeah, there's just something special about that that you can absolutely. You know. And it really did feel like a gift because you you could go there and you just see these people light up. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not disparaging the people that are there. Of course, they've they've lived their life and that's where they are. And you just have this opportunity to bring them joy with entertaining. Or you can wear the other hat and do the music therapy, which is what I decided to do. And that is a joy in itself because it, it's it's another depth, another level that that brings you, brings you and uh, and your uh, what you're offering e- even closer as a, as yeah. a sort of a way of communicating. I did about four or five different programs with uh with I, I worked in one facility for a number of years and they were big supporters of music therapy and so yeah. i would do a hymn sing i would do a music and discussion i would do my regular music therapy and it was i had about 23 hours a week there which is yeah. a phenomenal amount for a music therapist usually you only get a couple of hours at a facility and then you got to move on and find other work yeah. so i was really fortunate in that regard well, it's so neat, and you got the personality too, from from what I know of you, right? You got that that well, kind of personality. Well, for... <laughs> I I guess I yeah I've I've been told that I I think really I was I I, I knew the music I enjoyed playing it, uh you I was familiar with the population of course because I was getting older yeah and uh, you sort of realize that your world is is not really that far apart from theirs and you go in there. And I could play songs like Blueberry Hill yeah. and and uh, some early Elvis, you know, with uh, a fair amount of uh, acceptance by that yeah. population. I mean, you can't sort of whip into some James Brown stuff, but you could certainly do more accessible material. Yeah. And so uh, I quite enjoyed that aspect of it. And then the other thing, of course, is that it enlightened me about the material that they would like to hear which I had oftentimes dismissed in my sort of ignorance because it was material that was either uh, too, um, I just didn't care for it that much. But yeah. once I got in there and had to play it, we don't have to play it, but you want to learn it because that's the music that they're asking for. So yeah, I learned Sentimental Journey and, and different songs that were You Are My Sunshine, songs that yeah. were significant for them. But there was also some standards I had to learn uh, I remember learning Unforgettable, the Nat yeah. King Cole song, Love and uh, different it. things that were more melodic and and, uh, and meaningful that I quite enjoyed learning. 
So yeah, yeah it's cool. No, that's that's cool, and that's a good word. And what you said earlier about about the age thing too. You get a little bit older, you're you're comfortable. You've played for decades. Like there's there's no sort of invisible wall between you and the people. You're just kind of like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm here. You know, I'm now. how are you doing? <laughs> that's pretty true, Dan. There's a comfort there's a comfort zone that sort of sets in, yeah. and you already know you, that you're you're able to play. Yeah. And next, of course, is you you know you're able to perform, and now you're just trying to communicate and get uh, especially with the music therapy you want to try and get people so that involves uh you know passing out instruments to people, more involvement with the people which yeah. is great and, no that's uh, super cool man yeah. I, it's I, it's not something that i would probably be gifted for i've played for older audiences and stuff but i usually just talk a little bit and sing my songs but yeah. that whole other aspect of the therapeutic side of it yeah. is super cool and intriguing it's not my it, thing but i'm i applaud it yeah, it is. It, it's quite interesting. I didn't think it was going to be my thing either. I think the thing that I discovered more than anything going to school is that I had this compassionate side of my nature, mm -hmm. which had never actually been uh, brought out, I guess. And so uh, that was what sort of carried me in, through to the uh, music therapy side of things. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, that's, yeah. well, thanks for sharing that. I really yeah. appreciate that. And that's, uh, that's a heartwarming story. So a couple other questions, just as, as we, uh, I usually ask a half a dozen different questions at the end, but I'll just run through them quickly if you sure. want to do a, a rapid round. But did, did you like touring? Were you a touring guy or did you? I didn't mind it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, especially when I was uh, young and single and traveling through the U.S., I loved it. Yeah. Uh, it was not as enjoyable later on, uh, primarily because it was uh, more of a, uh, mm, uh struggle or a chore yeah. when you're young and and uh sort of unattached and traveling through the u.s it's got some magic about it so yeah yeah i didn't mind touring but i certainly enjoyed the early part better did you have a because I, I i didn't like touring but i had a family and stuff and i was just missing home and just didn't want to be in the ozone as we used to call it right <laughs> <laughs> no when i was when i was the enjoyable part of touring which i was talking about a minute ago I was uh, single and, you know, yeah. sort of, uh, and I was uh, an only child. I didn't have any, I have uh, my folks at home, but yeah. uh, no brothers and sisters. And although I love Vancouver, uh, I, I was enjoying this uh, two and a half year stint down in the yeah. state. Yeah. So did you have a family and, and that later? Yeah, I got, uh, my, my first wife uh, came on the road with me in, in 1968. Oh, that yeah. didn't last very long. And then uh, the second marriage, too, I met her uh, on the road. Uh, she worked for the management company. And uh, then uh, the most recent marriage, uh, one from uh, 1985 onward, actually, I just lost my wife this past year to, oh. to Alzheimer's. But we I'm were married to hear that. 35 years. Yeah, thank yeah, I'm you. I'm sorry to hear that, Al. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was ongoing. And then more recently, just within this last year, I have uh, reconnected with a lady that i had a relationship with 43 years ago oh. and uh, we had actually met at rohan's and now we've rekindled this relationship nice and uh that brings you right up to the present and uh she's wonderful yeah yeah nice it's funny i wrote a song about that exact thing called reflections in the water oh. and about people who had been together earlier in their life and got back together later in life and interesting yeah 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 so well, very cool. Well, that's that's a nice story, and 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 a, yeah, that's that's what I found was when you have a family and you got kids and you're on the road and stuff. It just doesn't; those two lives just cannot coexist, as far as I I was concerned. But yeah, um, my, my had a, I, I had a daughter uh, in my second marriage, uh, yeah. Alicia. She unfortunately has passed away from leukemia. She oh, passed away in that. 2012. But hmm. uh, of course, I have two grandkids. Grandkids, and no. when uh, we were uh, on the road. Uh, you know, she was just uh, quite young at that time. And then uh, when my uh, second wife and I separated, of course, Alicia, our daughter, uh, she stayed with her mom. But then yeah. uh, through the years, uh, she came to live with me for her high school years and beyond. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a history with. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, good to you, yeah. Al. And uh, yeah. sounds like you've been through some some tough times, too. But uh, I guess that's that's what life is, right? Especially yeah. As you get it, older. It's funny the the curves it throws at you because you just sort of deal with it and uh, like I say when I lost my wife this last year after 35 years and uh, the uh, the it wasn't uh, it wasn't pretty of course uh, Alzheimer's is such a lousy disease yeah. but then to have this uh, 
rejuvenation, if you will, it's from uh, reconnecting with Lee's. Uh, that's been a wonderful uh, sort of a, out of a, you know, out of yeah. a, out of the ashes comes a you know it's a rebirth sort of thing. It's, it's been quite uh, quite significant. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And I think as yeah. as you as we get older, you become more philosophical about it and go, you know, you only get a certain amount of days on this planet. You might Absolutely. as well make the best of them. And you know, yeah, yeah. The, the philosophical part kicks in big time. You know, I'm 78 years old now, so to have yeah. this happen is is remarkable. And we both yeah. know it. I mean, we've had a lifetime of uh, of uh, to live. Uh, in separate lives, like I said, we haven't seen each other or connected for 43 years. Well, wow. no, it's it, it's quite a remarkable story. Yeah, well, good for you. I mean, that that's nice to hear. Yeah. So, just a big general question that I sure. like to ask people, just to get your take on it. How, how do you think the music business has changed over, say, the last 50 years or the time that you've been in it? What do you think the most significant changes are? Oh, probably uh, digital uh, electronics. Mm-hmm. Sort of the lack of uh, of uh, what do I say? The immediacy of, of what I would say, you know, real drums or just things that are to me uh, are important. And I, I listen to stuff now that uh, doesn't really do much for me. And, uh, you know, I think, God, I sound just like my parents, you know, because they would say <laughs> <laughs> so the same thing. But I really do. I think I was born at the right time and I listened to the stuff that I enjoyed back when i was a teenager and in my early 20s and i still enjoy it as much now and uh when i'm exploring on uh, my alexa device or on youtube invariably i'm searching around in the past for stuff i missed out on or people are sending me stuff that's no in no way connected with the with the current music scene i'll I'll leave that for the younger people that are that are enjoying it but for me i just noticed the uh the um, the effect of electronics and the lack of uh, immediacy of the of yeah the, the sort of heart you know singing yeah. from the heart the feel yeah. stuff right yeah. yeah yeah so what have you got going on now are you still singing and playing and got your piano you know and what? still I got doing my, thing? <laughs> I got my first gig coming up in a year and a half I oh, haven't nice. worked <laughs> I haven't worked since March 2020 wow uh, that was of course when COVID hit yeah and so um, Everybody, well, yeah, I don't have to mention it to you. Everybody knows the entertainment industry was one of the the hardest hit, and yeah. so uh, a lot of people were struggling. And uh, I wasn't uh, that active on the scene much, but uh, I did have a fair amount of entertainment things that uh, were involved in with uh, care facilities. And of course, yeah. they were one of the worst hit early on. Yes, that's so right. They I lost right uh, a lot of gigs right away, and uh, over the course of a year and a few months. I haven't done much work at all, but I have got a gig coming up at the uh, Cornerstone Bistro on the 22nd of July. So I'll put a little plug nice. in that. Oh, and, good. Yes. Uh, yeah. And where's the Cornerstone Bistro? Is that the Cornerstone there? Bistro is in North Vancouver in uh, Pemberton Heights. Nice. On 22nd Avenue. I forget the cross street, but if yeah. people are interested, they can look at a cornerstone. And uh, I'm thinking of doing a little bit of a retrospective of my uh, crazy life, just that we've been reviewing here. So. Yeah, do it. It's <laughs> great. I think yeah. people are interested in it, and you've got lots of things to share, and and it's it's great. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing some with me, and and being so forthcoming and stuff too. I really appreciate it. You got lots to share. Well, thanks, Dan. It's been an enjoyable interview, and yeah, yeah. over the years, there's there's a lot more in my little <laughs> history than I realized until you start talking about it. But uh, yeah, yeah, over the years, it's been uh, quite the uh, you know quite the great adventure, and I I'm not ready to hang up my rock and roll shoes just yet so no that's, uh, that's i'll still be out there doing some entertaining uh more so as the covid declines and uh see what's out there more for sure good for you well that's an inspiration to everybody and i want to be like that too you know i'm like i said i'm catching up to you i'm not quite where you are but i'm catching up to you and i want to be like that too i want to be an inspiration and just keep keep singing as long as i can and when i'm done i'm done but until then i'm doing what i can do great stuff yeah Many thanks to Al Foreman for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his fun-filled life in the music business. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. And we'd like you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you are hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare. 